Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. Today's episode is a season wrap for the first season of Revolution of Military Affairs, and I thought I'd go back, uh, borrowing from my friend Peter Roberts' technique, and ask a few questions about what it is that we've learned over the course of this season. First, I think we'll go back and answer the question, where have all the theorists gone? That was a question posed earlier in the season, as I examine the work of Liddell Hart and J.F.C. Fuller, among other folks. Most of the theorists, it seems today, have long uh, long disappeared, and I think there's a couple of uh, reasons for that, and then also a couple of, of questions that need to be answered about that. So first, the idea of what is a theorist um, is not as straightforward as it once was. I think with the rise of the social sciences, with the rise of... Uh, international relations theory and theorists specifically in the 20th century uh, you may have seen a comparable decline at a similar rate to the idea of the military theorist uh, just because some of the same ground was covered in those fields uh, but the international relations theorist became uh, more more popular more accepted in academia and whatnot and so you saw a decline at a comparable rate to to the military theorists. At the same time, the theorists also perhaps went the uh, the way of the dodo bird, if you will, uh, because of the rise of uh, the defense industry. So almost almost parallel to the rise of the international relations theorist was the rise of the defense industry in the 20th century in that post-World War II era in which um, defense industry really took hold and became a force to be reckoned with um, within the study of uh, within the defense community. And so because of that, you see a decline at the same rate of military theorists because instead of ideas leading concept, that is, ideas leading the way to think about 
and the way to analyze the conduct of war, defense industry um, almost put the cart in front of the horse and said, here's technology, you know, um, here's, here's a new thing. Now let's figure out a way for you to buy this and then put it into practice put it into practice within your force. And so as you saw that as you saw that happen, the theorist became less important because ideas about how to fight and how to generate uh, um, forces to fight became less important in relation to the rise of uh, defense industry and the procurement of things. And so I really think those two things, um, and especially based off the conversations that we've had over the course of this podcast, I think it's really helped reinforce that idea. The rise of the the international relations theorists and the rise of the defense industry, both almost on the same glide path through the 20th century, perhaps for the death nail of the military theorist as we as we knew it from the past, right? After the guys like JFC Fuller and Liddell Hart, there's there's a significant drop off in theorists, and so you have uh, Trevor Dupuy, um, who's perhaps one of the last uh, real theorists that you see, at least in the in the U.S. literature, and then you have Robert Leonard as well uh, in the 90s, but then after that, they all but disappear. Another interesting thing that I noticed. And I think this is also part of the reason you no longer see theorists, is being a theorist doesn't pay. And so we had conversations with Andrew Carr specifically, and that was one of the one of the things that came out of that conversation was you can't you can't make a living off of being a military theorist like JFC Fuller was or not JFC Fuller, but uh, Liddell Hart was able to do, right? There aren't people that are just paid, generally speaking, aren't paid to just sit, think, and write about uh about military theory and you know go around and and and, and preach that to to people there are think tanks that kind of do that but they're not necessarily talking about military theory there's there's often an agenda associated with a think tank uh, that they're trying to push whether it's the institution's agenda or the heavy hitter that they have working there and those folks are often not theorists either they're they're analysts uh, in most cases or IR theorists or some sort of political science theorist or some sort of historian. So there's a slight difference there that I think is that exists and it's important. That that really I think has helped undercut that. So that the absence of being able to make a living uh, I think has really hurt the idea of the military theorist. The other thing, and I think this is really important to note too, the few times you have seen theorists emerge in that post- um, post-World War II, post-defense industry, post-international relations theorist, post-rise of the institutionalization of military thinking, which I forgot to point that out when I was talking about the defense industry, the institutionalization, right? So as IR theorists became uh, important, as the defense industry became important, you also saw shortly after that there was a bit of a plateau if you think of it in terms of like a bell curve almost there was a plateau in that in that bell curve um, where things things level out and during that leveling period military thinking um, becomes institutionalized right and so you see that in western militaries through the rise of these headquarters that that focus purely on things like thought you have the rise of uh, professional doctrine writers that exist professional idea generators and writers for those ideas within uh, Western military headquarters. And so 
that institutionalization of military thinking coupled with that rise and plateau of the defense industry and the rise and the plateau of IR theory and IR thinking really seem to to work together to extinguish the fire that existed there for military theorists and independent military theory development. And so that creates a situation where thinking outside the box, thinking in ways that don't align with institutionalization, the defense industry, the IR theorists, thinking in ways that are that are outside that um, becomes dangerous, if you will, for for non-institutionalists, but then also in, people in, in within those institutions, right? So people within uniform. And so thinking and developing ideas that run contrary to whatever institution they may belong to becomes dangerous for them. And I guess I'll just conclude this conversation here on where are the theorists by stating the few theorists that we've seen that did rise in that post-defense industry, post-institutionalization period, post-IR theory epoch, many of those individuals end up, especially if they're in uniform, I, I, it, you're hard-pressed to find anybody outside of uniform, uh, I guess unless depending on how you define a uh, military theorist. But those within uniform generally generally seem to have topped out at lieutenant colonel, which is an interesting thing in my opinion because some of the individuals that were charged with helping change institutions when they didn't want to change that should have been protected and pulled along and pushed ahead of, uh, you know, their peer group as it relates to promotions and whatnot, uh, were not. Strategy is another topic that came up this season that I think is worth reviewing. Strategy is far more than just the, the heuristic that's taught in staff colleges and or is discussed in emotive terms such as good and bad. Strategy is really about understanding where you're trying to go, regardless of what that may be uh, in, in relation to. Visualizing a path to get there by first identifying the, the goal to which you're, you're moving, and then examining your existing resources, the things that you have available at your disposal, but also looking into uh, resources that can be generated, right? And so if we look at Ukraine, you know, re- Ukraine had insufficient resources for the task at hand as it pertained to defending itself against Russia. So Ukraine was able to activate uh, latent and even non-existent bases of power. And if you go back to uh, Robert Dahl, that's one of the key things that he talks about in his discussion of power is the ability to activate bases of power that you may have or that you may not have or that you may have that are lying dormant. And that is a critical element of strategy that's overlooked. Moreover, definitions of victory are, are important to understand when it relates to strategy. Definitions of victory are are fundamentally unique to the individual or actor that uh, is involved in a given situation, in this case, you know, a given conflict perhaps. So trying to impose your own definition of victory or impose your own emotive uh, definition of victory or inject your own virtuous definition of victory onto, onto another combatant or another adversary operating in armed conflict is, is perhaps a fool's errand because you have to take because you have to understand that they may or may not define victory in the same way that you do. Again, here I'll, re- I'll turn to, uh, to Russia and Ukraine. 
Uh, there's been a lot of finger wagging at, at Russian military operations uh, lately because, or not even lately, the whole time because uh, we've, uh, the West in many cases has done uh, mirror Im- imaging bias or, you know, again, like I've said, the, the virtue bias, right? They, they don't do it our way or they do it at high cost or, you know, they're doing these operations in Bakhmut or Avdivka at high cost and low return. And so I think this is an important element of strategy that we have to look at in greater detail. Russian theorist Alexander Svechin offers a, a unique perspective, not only into the Russian mind, but just strategic thinking in general. And I'm going to uh, pick and choose some parts of his book here to, to examine really quick as we talk about this. Svechin writes in his book, Strategy, Strategic thinking begins when one, in the course of military operations, begins to see a certain path that must be traveled in order to achieve the goals of the war. That path and those goals, again, are fundamentally unique to the actor or the combatant who's in pursuit of of those goals. And so to say that their goals are something that uh, are incorrect or the path that they have chosen is incorrect misunderstand strategy because the the fundamental thing that um, is unique uh, more so than anything to any actor is their their means right the resources that they have available and means inform ways right Uh, you you can come up with all sorts of great ways but if you don't have the means to accomplish those ways or you don't have the ability to generate bases of power that provide the means then you're very very limited in the ways by which you can you can attack that objective, and so again, if we look at Russia and Ukraine, um, Russia's advantage is in in manpower predominantly, and so they use manpower as one of their primary means uh, within their strategy to achieve their objectives. And again, their objectives are essentially the denationalization of Ukraine, right? The interruption of Ukrainian sovereignty, the annexation of Ukrainian land, which they've done. Um, fairly successfully at this point. And again, I have to say, I am 100% behind Ukraine winning this conflict. But when I approach uh, the analysis of conflict, right, conflict analysis, I approach it from a very um, rational, causal, and unemotional position. So I add that caveat to say that, you know, Russia's aligned a strategy, Russia's developed a strategy in Ukraine that I think is is well aligned with with their strategic advantages uh, as it relates to means. And conversely, I think you also, when you think about strategy, have to look at it. Uh, when you do strategy, you also have to do an inverse strategy, right? Or subtractivism type view on strategy where Russia's advantage also happens to be Ukraine's disadvantage. And so it makes even more sense for Russia to use a strategy of attrition or a strategy of destruction, however you want to describe it, to attack Ukraine. Svechin here is again useful. He says, the strategy of destruction is characterized by a unity of purpose, time, place, and action. Until then, a destruction offensive must aim at the complete disorganization of the enemy's manpower and its complete destruction, splitting every link between its intact fragments and capturing the communications that are most important for that armed force rather than the country as a whole. Again, this very much aligns with what Russia is doing. They're focusing manpower over time against Ukraine, which has insufficient manpower and isn't um, given the luxury of time because of its dependence on the international community to provide its support. Um, and so Russia has, I think, really um, understood strategy in such a way that they are putting Ukraine in a very... Uh, bad position, which has led to 
the noted stalemate that exists right now at this time. And I'll talk a bit more about the conflict um, here in a bit, but right now I'm, I'm still focusing on strategy. So when we talk about ways, when we talk about ends specifically, and also means, I think means are also really important here, uh, and risk for that matter, you know, what, what degree of risk is a, is a state or a combatant willing to accept? Two key ideas are very important here. So the idea of private information and incomplete information uh, dominate the strategic, uh, the, the strategic intercourse between actors, right? So private information is the information that an actor has uh, that they don't share with anybody else, right? So I think a lot of times the publicly stated strategic or policy objectives of a state or an armed force engaged in conflict, that that is also uh, falls into that complete and pri- incomplete and private information category. Their publicly stated goals are not necessarily their true goals. They may be a portion of their true goals. They may be uh, incomplete uh, representations of what is really at stake. And so, for instance, here, if we were to look at uh, at Russia's goals in Ukraine, right? So the, you know, denazification uh, per Vladimir Putin, uh, the essentially um, taking Ukraine's sovereignty and making it a, 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 a hub of Russia, a nub of Russia, rather. Uh, those are some publicly stated goals. But I also think that Russia has some um, some goals that are non or unstated. And so, like I've said a couple times on discussions on this podcast, the idea of minimally accepted outcomes, I think, is part of this private and incomplete information idea. Minimally acceptable outcomes are things that are, you know, Beneath the grand, uh, the grand stated goals that are goals that are just as uh, okay for a for a state or a, a military that's supporting a state uh, when they're engaged in armed conflict. So for Russia, you know, I I think that their their minimally acceptable outcome is is this. So it's it's got three three parts. It's the retention of the Donbass, uh, the retention of the Crimean land bridge, and then the uh, retention of Crimea itself. That's the the minimal thing that Russia's okay walking away from this conflict with. And so what you see going on now, like in Evdivka, right? So this is the big hot thing that everybody's talking about. Why is Russia doing this? It doesn't make any sense. They're throwing away all these people, all these forces. And I think they're playing for time, right? So that they can settle. And if they get to the point of negotiation, they've got what they want. They've got the Donbass. They've got the Crimea, the Lambert to Crimea. They've got Crimea. Uh, whereas uh, on the other side of that equation, that incomplete information for uh, the incomplete and private information as it relates to Ukrainian policy objectives and strategic military objectives uh, is also important. So again, you know, as has been publicly stated, you know, Ukraine's goals are perhaps the restoration of the uh, the territorial boundaries of their 1991 uh, status, right? That's what's publicly stated, but there's probably a significant degree of uh, minimal acceptable outcomes that are that are not publicly stated, that are private information, uh, you know, just to the policymakers within Ukraine, and so that that generates incomplete information, right, for the public, for the international community, and for you know for Russia, for that instance. And so you've got this this game that goes on here between these two ideas. And so I think that that's something important because it affects how conflicts unfold, right? It it affects uh, the 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 ways in which um, means are allocated and the the ways in which risk is calculated as it relates to strategy. 
The other idea here is this idea, and I've written about this in a previous paper that I published in Military Review uh, in the July-August uh, 2020 edition. As the paper is called The Strategic Relevance of Tic-Tac-Toe. And the idea is this, uh, what I called strategic sub subtractivism. And that is the idea that uh, you use loss for strategic gain. And so again, tying this back to Russia and Ukraine, and let's say Avdivka, for instance, right now, I think tactical loss that facilitates strategic gain is this idea of subtractivism. So it looks like a loss on the surface, um, but when you dig underneath the hood, it's actually advancing a state towards their strategic goals. And so again, it goes back to the discussion of ways and means, right? So Russia has the advantage in manpower. They, they have this essentially right now, it appears to be an open floodgate of, uh, you know, ballistic munitions from Iran, from North Korea, uh, potentially from China, right? So they have this influx of munitions. They have this uh, vast manpower advantage. And so they can go and get chewed up on the front in a huge battle in Avdivka or a huge battle in Bakhmut or a big battle in Mariupol. They can go and invest all these, these resources in terms of munitions, people, equipment, um, because big picture, it's, it's advancing them towards their goal of retaining the Donbass, retaining the land bridge to Crimea, and retaining the uh, Crimea itself. And it's advancing them towards that goal because it is accelerating Ukraine's culmination, right? Their, in a, their ability to stay in the fight uh, quickly evaporates the more that Russia does these destructive operations because Ukraine's losing, I don't know the numbers, but a significant amount of men, equipment, and resources as well in these battles that we see playing out. And when you you know look at the strategic balance between the two, that favors Ukra uh, that favors Russia uh, in terms of uh, advancing towards strategic goals. The final thing to remember about strategy is that there's more than one way to go about doing strategy. So I've used ends, ways, means, and risk here just because it's uh, somewhat simpler to uh, to manipulate and talk talk through fairly easily. Uh, but there are many, many different ways to go about strategy. There's more than one strategy. There are more than one way um, to link strategy to uh, things one wants to do. Going back to Svetchen, he uses strategies of attrition, strategies of uh, destruction, and other strategies within his book to explain the, the methods by which an army or military force will operate. A logical argument can be made that what he's describing aren't strategies per se, but are operational approaches to use modern terms and I think that's fair uh, yet at the same time I also believe that they could be uh, strategies you know in their own right not getting into the merits of debating Svechin but um, I, I bring that up to talk about one of his points here when he talks about strategies of attrition um, because I think that this this is uh, at the heart of a lot of the debate that uh, we see today but then I'm also going to use it as a a pivot point for us to talk about maneuver here in just a moment, but Svechin writes, The weary path of a strategy of attrition, which leads to the expenditure of much, great, much greater resources than a short destructive strike aimed at the heart of an enemy, is in general chosen only when a war cannot be ended in a single blow. The operations of a strategy of attrition are not so much directed toward the achievement of an ultimate goal as they are stages in the deployment of material superiority which would ultimately deprive the enemy of the means for successful resistance.
So a couple of key things there that I think are worthy of talking about. So it says that uh, Svetchen writes that um, you know different strategies are chosen uh, based off conditions and based off the situation, right? So in his in this instance, a strategy of attrition is chosen when a war cannot be won by a single blow or ended by a single blow, and so that means um, you know if you take Russia Ukraine for instance. You know, Russia tried to win the war um, in February 2022 in a single blow, right? It struck out for Kiev, uh, Kharkiv, and then um, the land bridge to Crimea. And it succeeded in the south fairly fairly well. It didn't succeed in Kharkiv, and it didn't su- succeed in Kiev, uh, as we saw play out on TV in the early days of that conflict. It chose, it being Russia, it chose to transition its strategy when it realized that the war uh, was not able to be won in a single blow, right? So it realized it wasn't, you know, despite all its uh, all all the uh, arrows slung towards Russia, I don't think that it's they are as stupid as what folks may give them credit. Uh, I think that they identified what was going on. It took them a while to identify it. I'm not saying they figured this out within the first couple of days. I think it took them probably a few months to figure it out, but then they transitioned their strategy to one of attrition because they understood that they had material superiority and that was going to be the linchpin for them to, uh, to, to, to de- defeat the Ukrainians. And so, you know, that's what it, when you carry on with this passage that I read here, the operations of a strategy of attrition are not so much directed toward the achievement of an ultimate goal as they are stages in the deployment of material superiority which would ultimately deprive the enemy of the means of success for successful resistance russia's military operations against ukraine uh, through the course of the war come summertime 24 uh, 2022 that idea that i just read from svechen is is germane to how russia operated it was about not necessarily a goal, uh, aside from the big picture victory, um, but it was just about the deployment and maintaining of material superiority over Ukraine, which you know gets to the goal of depriving Ukraine of the means of successful resistance, right? I think that's the big thing to take away from all this when we talk about strategy. There's not one way that's better than any other, right? What's what's best is what wins. And so it doesn't matter if you have um, some fancy idea with a cool name and a good marketing um, you know, campaign and a cool video that's on YouTube that describes it. Like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And so... We need to think about that when we think about strategy. Strategy is not the realm of the dogmatists, nor dogma. It should be the realm of pragmatists, you know, pragmatically pursuing whatever it is, by whatever means, or with whatever means, and by whatever ways, to ultimately achieve one's goals. When we look at strategy, we need to be, I think, more a, a bit more dispassionate. Strategists got to understand that their job isn't to rubber stamp anything that the boss uh, thinks is important. Their uh, true strategists, as, as Bill Murray said earlier in this series, are disruptors or people that think differently, act differently, and force their organizations to think and act differently. So strategists must embody that idea as they do their job. All right, a quick rundown on maneuver. We've had a great uh, great discussion this uh, first season with uh, several guests on Maneuver. We talked to Heather Venables about Maneuver. We talked with uh, Chris Denzel about Maneuver. 
uh, Franz, Stefan, Gotti, talk to us about Maneuver. Uh, Christopher Tuck, uh, whose episode is absolutely terrific and uh, it surprised me in how well it's done. Uh, talk to us about Maneuver. Tony King talked to us about Maneuver. Michael Kaufman talked to us about Maneuver. So we've had a very well-rounded um, discussion on Maneuver through the course of this season. The major points that I think I took away from that discussion is that Maneuver isn't the, mon- uh, the mon- monolith that um, institutions will want you to believe. True Maneuver Warfare, not the not the brand bandied about by uh, Western militaries today, but the the true idea, the true concept only actually fits in a handful of situations. Maneuver warfare is uh, fundamentally dependent on the situation uh, and then the components and the conditions uh, or the components that an actor has at their disposal uh, when facing an adversary. So maneuver is not applicable in all situations, uh, nor should it be, um, giving, given that, you know, when we talked about strategy a moment ago, there are plenty of strategic situations in which maneuver doesn't make sense. Uh, so, you know, sometimes you have to, or you need to, or you want to, just grind away on an adversary, right? Big picture. Think about Mosul, right? The point of Mosul, uh, in many regards, was to just, if you know, grind away on, on uh, the Islamic State until they had uh, no longer had the capacity to continue to resist. And you see that articulated as such uh, in strategic guidance that the you know the US military and western militaries received from the president of the United States as well as the secretary of defense at the time right uh, both president trump and uh, defense secretary mattis both specifically used the word annihilate in their comments and direction um, to the US military the comments in open public forum but then also that trickled its way down uh, into um, the way that the U.S. forces and their partners were operating there against the Islamic State. Again, so like, if if you're trying to annihilate an opponent, big picture, big picture, that means you're essentially doing a strategy of attrition like Svechin described. Right now, as you work your way down that telescopic ladder, right, down to the, the tactical level, that may look different. Um, at various points along the way, and that's fine, but big picture, um, you know, you're doing a strategy of attrition. So, components and conditions, right? The situation must be such that it makes sense to do maneuver, um, that the situation allows for maneuver against situations that don't allow for maneuver. Uh, Big picture, um, urban warfare, right? Urban environments don't allow for maneuver. Now, when you zoom down to the micro-tactical level, you may have squads, you may have platoons even doing maneuver. Uh, but as you zoom back out, right, as you get back out, it depends It depends on scale. Uh, urban environments are not conducive to maneuver. Same thing with wooded environments, you know, mountainous terrain. Uh, environments dominated by lots of waterways, rivers, and whatnot. Uh, the more that uh, a force has to slow down and move methodically through an environment, the less it's apt to be able to do maneuver. The word maneuver is often misused to describe things that aren't actually maneuver or maneuver warfare. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that word is used in place of you know, the word movement, um, the word navigating, and I think that one specifically is one where folks are often um, misspeak when they use the word 
when they're describing navigating or moving through complex or difficult terrain, just moving, not actually fighting through that terrain, they'll use the word maneuver because it makes sense. Like, if you use the English definition, dictionary definition of that term, that, that, that fits in that situation. However, um, because we have completely uh, abused the phrase, it, it doesn't make sense because that's not what we mean. So it, it's just important to be clear about that and understand that maneuver is not omnipresent in everything that Western militaries do and then absent from everything that all of Western military opponents do, right? It's not always what wins. Uh, and, and the things that don't win aren't always something else, you know, they aren't always uh, attrition or, or whatever the case may be. And I think Chris Tuck does a really good job of making that point uh, early in this early in this season. And then also I think that there's a, a problem in terms of identity, right? So this, this idea has become so interwoven within Western militaries that it's almost become part of an identity, right? And there's this phrase... Uh, maneuverist approach and maneuverist that uh, are used to describe individuals and organizations that employ maneuver and it's almost like uh it's almost like a popularity contest like Ooh, i'm a maneuverist right and then folks will point to people like me who who think that you know maneuver isn't the end-all be-all but it's just a tool in the kit bag to do different things uh, they'll, they'll, you know, disparagingly refer to me or people that, you know, bang away on maneuver as, it, as uh, you know, just one, one method of warfighting is, you know, they'll, they'll call us attritionists or whatnot. And that, that in itself is illogical and doesn't make sense. And so there's this weird identity situation that goes on with the discussion of maneuver that I think um, makes it challenging for people who self-identify as maneuverists and utilizing maneuverist uh, approaches um, to get on board with the fact that, you know, that approach isn't the the one way to win wars. That self-identification as a maneuverist also is one of the largest impediments to uh, introducing new ideas into into military thinking. And so this, this concrete wall of maneuver, maneuver warfare, gets in the way of clear thinking about how to approach military situations. It gets in the way of clear thinking about how to adapt uh, military concepts and military strategy and military doctrine uh, to address realities uh, of, of modern warfare. Uh, again, as urbanization increases, as Tony King has reminded us, the ability to go out and do maneuver and maneuver warfare is going to decrease, not increase, decrease at a comparable rate uh, because the environment in urban areas just does not facilitate maneuver warfare in the way that uh, many people would think that uh, we would be able to do, we being just Western militaries in general, as a, as a general statement. I know I talked a lot about Ukraine and Russia when I talked about strategy, but this is the actual portion of this episode on, on Russia-Ukraine. So just real quick, I think we've come to a consensus here that uh, the conflict is at a stalemate. Franz Stefangotti had a, uh, a somewhat more optimistic assessment of the situation than did Michael Kaufman. You know, Franz sees uh, Ukraine having uh, coming into the next year, 2024, on a bit better footing than what they, what they left 2023 with, whereas uh, Michael Kaufman is a bit more pessimistic and he sees the advantage residing with, uh, with uh, Ukraine. My opinion on the situation is that uh, Ukraine is 
is probably in a bad spot right now. I don't know that they have the capability to overcome the situation that they're in uh, to achieve their their stated political objectives, which are the restoration of the 1991 uh, borders with Russia. Uh, again, I think it's important to understand risk in this situation, right? The game of risk. Uh, you have to, when you take territory, you have to move armies from one position where they currently are into another. Uh, once you've moved those armies, now you have to generally leave something um, from the location that you've attacked from, uh, especially in a contested environment like we see in eastern Ukraine and southern Ukraine. You have to leave an army in the area that you just vacated uh, or you've just attacked from. When you attack into that, uh, you know, the contested area there and you've taken that territory, you then have to invest it with forces sufficient to uh, prevent a counterattack or address a counterattack if a counterattack comes. Now, some situations there won't be a counterattack. However, in Russia-Ukraine scenario, I think the Donbass, the Crimean land bridge, Crimea itself, those will be counterattacked against if, if Ukraine were able to take those territories. And so you have to uh, a attack from, uh, if successful, then invest in that territory, right? And then prepare for a counterattack. And the question in that situation, that attack, move into, invest in, and when I say invest in, that means forces and defensive capabilities, right? So that's not just precision strike munitions or the coverage, like Mike Hoffman said, coverage rings of precision strike. That is actual physical people. So for this, this attack into... Uh, to retake terrain, this attack into, you know, whether it's the Donbass, whether it's um, the land bridge to Crimea, those provinces or those oblasts that connect the Donbass down to Crimea or Crimea itself, it's going to take people, um, which is the, the rub here that I think isn't being addressed. So Ukraine's being provided quite a bit of equipment, quite a bit of uh, firepower from, from their Western partners in this endeavor against Russia. But the one thing that isn't coming is people. And so unless Ukraine is able to find additional people that can enable a strategy in which they retake those those territories that have been uh, taken by Russia. And again, the strategy required to take those territories, given the fact that Russia's had them now for, you know, I mean, they've had Crimea, they've had the Donbass since 2014, 2015 when Minsk II was signed, but they've had the Lambert to Crimea basically since 2022. Given that amount of time and Russia's acknowledgement that a strategy of attrition is the way by which they're going to win this war, um, Russia has invested in significant defense in those areas. They've also invested in significant uh, tactical offensives. You know, again, this is the, the idea of Bakhmut. Of Divka, these um, tactical, um, high cost tactical endeavors uh, that help fuel strategic gain, right? Uh, burning through manpower, burning through resources isn't stupid if it's deliberate and part of a integrated plan that acknowledges both your advantages and your limitations in comparison with your adversaries advantages and limitations and the shortcomings associated with all those right so again ukraine has an advantage uh, in firepower right to the west but that can be neutralized over time you know uh through a long attritive campaign in which 
Russia, in this case, tries to exhaust, um, you know, the international community's political will to continue allowing their governments to invest in this. And so we'll see how this shakes out when when election rolls around, elections roll around. But big picture, again, uh, human beings are the limiting factor here, right? You can't, if you can't field an army sufficient to accomplish your strategic objectives, uh, then your strategic objectives are going to have to be um, modified to something that your force can actually achieve. And I think this is where, this is where we are with Russia, Ukraine, right? So Ukraine's, um, strategic objectives, uh, exceed what they are physically capable of doing, uh, because they don't have the means, uh, in this case, human beings that enable them to go do that. And so I think Russia clearly understands that, uh, and they are playing to that, to that Ukrainian dis- disadvantage and Russian advantage. So, is 2024 wears on i don't think that ukraine uh uh, i don't think that ukraine um is going to have a good year i think that these manpower issues cannot be overcome as some say with precision um or any other form of firepower they can only be overcome with uh plotting methodical advances of human beings and destructive combat to uh destroy russian forces that's the first condition that has to be achieved secondly uh occupying those those areas on the battlefield you know those those oblasts in ukraine with sufficient force to protect against counterattack from russia and that's i think the second condition and then from there they have to have credible force um built in that into that location afterwards uh that that really prove a true deterrent to russia uh, future russian aggression in that area and so i think that's the third condition i think those three conditions are uh, what Ukraine has to achieve in order to actually win this war against against Russia, at least on the battlefield. And I don't think that they're going to have uh, the means available to them to do that anytime soon. So I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that uh, somehow the birth rate in Ukraine uh, picks up real quick and they get the forces required to do those operations that enable that strategic success. Because as I've said, I'm, I'm all in with Ukraine here. But I'm also... A, uh, a a clear-eyed analyst when it comes to looking at military problems, and I think that in military and political problems, and I think this is a significant one that Ukraine probably is not going to be able to overcome. Thing here, because I know we're going long, and I try to keep these uh, to 30 minutes or so. Um, but war and warfare, I think you know this podcast is about war and warfare. And uh, the name Revolution of Military Affairs is uh, meant somewhat tongue-in-cheek as we, as I got this thing started. Uh, but I love it, and I think it's great. And uh, just to close out on War and Warfare, there's a couple of points that I think have come to the fore so far uh, through this first season. So first is that pre- Precision Strike is not a silver bullet. It is not a panacea. I think the fundamental thing to remember, and uh, I've had some, a lot of conversations both some conversations on the podcast, some mini conversations off the podcast. A lot of the critique uh, that I that I get back when I when I critique Precision Strike is that uh, folks will say it's a weaponeering problem, and I think that that's that's a cop out, and that doesn't really get to the heart of the issue, right? The heart of the issue is you know Precision Strikes may be accurate, uh, but they're most often ineffective. They don't achieve the desired effect associated with it. Also. 
they have uh, destructive effects that they probably weren't intended to have, and this is where the critique on, you know, the, the the weaponeering idea comes into play. But fundamentally, if something comes in, regardless of how precise it is, and it explodes, it blows up, it's going to create unintended consequences wherever that thing blows up. And as long as you have things coming in to an area, especially if it's a densely packed urban area, and it explodes, you're going to have civilian casualties that are unintended and collateral damage, you know, unintended destruction and death in that area. Like, it's impossible for something to come in flying at a high rate of speed and explode and not do that. So let's quit ducking our head into the ground when we talk about precision and just keep saying, oh, it's precision strike. It's better, right? And let's talk about the effect that it's actually having. Because ultimately, like for me, my my criticism of precision strike isn't just to wag my finger at it and be like, oh, it's not that good. It's it's to help us improve and help us get better and help us not cause those collateral damage uh, situations and that death and destruction. The second point, too, is, uh, you know, long-range fires. They're not a silver bullet either, right? I also think that it's important to understand if you're advocating for long-range uh, fires and precision strike in conjunction with one another, but then saying you're a maneuverist, that makes no sense. Like those precision strike and long range fires used as the primary methods, right? Some folks call this idea standoff warfare. Those things done in conjunction with one another are fundamentally an attritional approach, right? They're a destruction based approach to warfighting. And so I think that's one important thing to note, but then also long range fires. Uh, or long-range precision strike, whatever way you want to phrase it, like that's just another tool in the kit kit bag. I also would offer, what's the point of close combat forces, right? Land forces, you know, brigades and divisions. If if we're advocating approaches that are based on standoff warfare, right? It, it just doesn't make any sense. There's no point for that closing force. There's no point for a close area. And again, I'm not a big fan of these the, the way that we have the battlefield organized in terms of closed, deep, uh, rear, and consolidation areas, right? Uh, but I think that that's an important thing to take away there. Uh, also, drones and drone swarms are not a silver bullet. There is a whole cottage industry that grew up in the wake of you know Nagorno-Karabakh in 2024 that used to point to these videos and say, look this is the future. We've seen the future and it's drones and drone warfare and drone swarms. And that's just not the case. Again, drones are just another element of combined arms. That's it. Period. They are not some big um, end-all be-all new future wave of uh, warfare. Right? They're just another element of combined arms. Now, if we come up with different ways to use them that uh, enable ground forces or land forces to move and take things in a, a better, more effective way, that's terrific, right? But again, that's just another form of combined arms. So we need to get better at understanding combined arms uh, so that we don't come up with illogical narratives about the efficacy of drones and drone warfare, right? Again, like, we cannot get stuck on this, you know, this 10 to 20 second YouTube video hype machine that's out there growing and advocating for things like that. There's, there's, there's presenters out there that will just show... Drone strike after drone strike after drone strike after drone strike and say, this is the wave of the future. No, it's not. No, it is not. It is not. All right. So we need to clearly understand 
the drones, drone warfare, drone swarms, all that stuff is just another element of combined arms warfare. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Final thing on this is that it's uh, imperative to understand that taking and holding ground is still probably the most important thing in, in warfare and war in general. And that's because, again... Um, forces uh, operate on the land predominantly, but people live on the land. Governments are based on the land. And land is the most effective way by which to generate an effect on a political leader. Occupying, I'm being generic here, occupying a, a state's uh, territory with a land force Enabled by joint capabilities, right? Enabled by air power and enabled by cyber uh, effects, enabled by, you know, naval naval forces if, if you're in a coastal region. All those things contribute to the success of a land force generating a cognitive effect on a political leader, right? And the military leaders within that within that chain of command. And if you can't generate that cognitive effect on those military leaders and on that political leader, you're not going to uh, make much headway in regards to uh, winning your conflict. So it's important to understand that land forces on the ground in a given conflict are the primary mechanism that generate that effect. So to, to tie a bow on this idea here, uh, land forces, I think, are f- extremely important. Tying this back to the idea of strategies of attrition and attrition and maneuver, right? The... Wars are won through attrition, not not maneuver. You may win some battles with maneuver, but big picture, you're not going to win the war um, if you're not engaged in a essentially a war of attrition. You have to be able to exhaust the resources, force your opponent to culminate uh, at a point ahead of where they are capable of achieving their political goals. And so, right, land forces generate attrition attrition generates the 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 effect on political leaders that are required for them to give in you know hey i'm done i'm out i'm not fighting anymore come to the negotiation table or just realize that they don't have the means to continue doing what it is they're trying to do so i think that that's uh, th- those those things we have to understand right we have to get that in our mind and so for policymakers you know like you can't you can't make forces you can't generate military forces we talk about force design that are small that are brittle and that aren't able to punch 
uh, well above uh, their weight and, and generate a significant effect on an adversary. Same, th uh, same thing when we think about uh, medical capabilities, right? So knowing that, you know, wars are highly attritional, because again, that's, show me one that's not, right? You're looking at Russia, Ukraine, highly attritional. You look at uh, what's going on between Hamas and Israel right now, extremely attritional. I think last thing I saw was 20,000 casualties in that conflict, which for that, given the size of that, that conflict area is significant. And uh, if we think about what would be a potential, uh, the potential con or the potential uh, attritional outputs of a conflict with between the West and China over Taiwan, those those would al also be extremely high casualty rates uh, and extremely high destruction rates of forces, right? And so because of that, we have to think through the fact that we can't make forces smaller and leaner with less, right? We have to actually make them able to take a punch and not fall apart and take a punch not fall apart and continue operating, right? Continue uh, moving forward to whatever that objective may be. Uh, and then on top of that, take another punch, not fall apart and continue moving forward. So there's significant things. This is part of the reason that I think it's so important to understand this distinction between all these ideas, right? Maneuvers, not the, not the monolithic perfect way to do things, right? Um, Precision strikes not a silver bullet. Long range, uh, long range fires are not a silver bullet. Drones and drone swarms aren't a silver bullet. Taking land, holding land remain important. Um, perhaps the most important thing that we have to have out there. We have to get out of this emotional narrative and idealistic uh, driven uh, approach to analyzing military conflict. And we have to think clearly about what it is war is and war is not. Okay, so thank you for listening uh, to this episode, which was uh, intended to be a bit of a wrap-up, even though it's gone quite long here. I could uh, keep talking for quite a while about this, but we're approaching an hour, which wasn't my goal. My goal was really 20 minutes uh, for this thing, but uh, there was such good discussion as I was working on wrapping it up. It was hard to... Uh, to keep it so short and condensed but thank you for listening to this episode thank you for listening to this podcast uh the podcast has really taken off quite a bit um and i'm i'm extremely excited about that and i appreciate that because that's all based off uh you know listener uh, participation so uh, please continue um listening to the podcast please continue uh giving us a, a rating on apple uh podcasts and all the other podcast uh platforms out there continue sharing the podcast all that stuff's really helping make the uh the podcast better and uh this this upcoming season i just want to drop a few a few names so that you know who's uh who we've got coming on we've got ben hodges we've got general dave petraeus we've got doctrine man and we've got many other exciting folks coming on this season we've also got uh hypergiant coming on which is one of the industry leaders in uh ai uh, to talk to us, we have actually uh, several episodes with them. Uh, they're going to talk about AI and, and, and the truth about AI because there's a lot of misconceptions out there. So it's going to be a fascinating season two. Uh, I look forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I hope that you continue to listen and continue to share the podcast with your, with your friends and colleagues uh, so that we can help grow the audience here. So uh, 
just to close out here, thank you very much again. I know I've said that a couple times already, but thank you. I truly mean it. I appreciate it. This podcast um, has been a lot of fun to do so far, and uh, I anticipate it will continue to uh, to provide me on an individual level personal uh, pleasure and enjoyment. So thank you for, for helping me, and I hope that you continue to find this podcast uh, either entertaining, educational, um, frustrating, whatever, whatever way you find it and whatever way causes you to, uh, continue to tune in. Uh, I hope that it continues to do that. So, uh, to close out here, just thank you very much. Have a, uh, a happy holiday season, right? We're, we're right up here on Christmas and then new year's right behind that. So we'll be taking a break for about a week. Um, this podcast got out a little later than I anticipated, uh, just cause <laughs> because I was dragging my feet because the holidays were coming around. Uh, but this will be out um, right before Christmas. I'll take a couple-day break, probably a week break, and then we'll be back. I believe uh, the next episode or the next season starts on January 1st uh, with Ben Hodges. So with that, uh, again, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Um, I hope you find this podcast helpful and educational and um something that you enjoy listening to so thank you and uh we'll see you in the new year Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.